I haven't had opportunity to address the community as a whole about our events of the last 11 days. We've experienced 12 days, but just want to say we are um, so grateful for God's special visitation. I'm particularly thankful for uh, your own uh, willingness to accommodate uh, the very, very large crowds that have come to Wilmore in the last few days, especially during the weekends. Uh, we, we had uh, all of our spaces open uh, for prayer. The, obviously, Estes, McKenna, the cafeteria, the gymnasium, um, quite a few spaces here for prayer. And uh, many dozens of you volunteered uh, your time and prayer and serving endless uh, needs in terms of accommodating, at one point, up to 15,000 people that were here in this town. Let me just say, I've been uh, uh, meeting regularly, of course, with the team across the street. We meet every day. And uh, the, the team really has, is, is godly people really seeking to best um, navigate through what we could not have planned for. We just simply are receiving it and trying to uh, do our best through it. I want to just say, uh, on behalf of all of us, I think that I want to say two things. First of all, uh, one thing that's absolutely clear in our tradition and our own founding as a seminary is that we believe in uh, awakening. Um, we believe that God does meet people. And I, I, I say, even if you deleted every blog post, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, you, what really mattered and what happened at these altars. And I, uh, I had the privilege of being in all of our spaces, Hughes as well as over here and at the altars, and, uh, and saw God do amazing, amazing things. And I just want to thank God for that. So yes, it's a miracle when God meets somebody at an altar. But I also want to say that when someone sits in a church history class or a theology class or a counseling class or any other class here, it's a miracle. I don't mean a miracle that you got through it. <laughs> I mean, it's a miracle that we are in a process of training and equipping here. It's just a slow motion miracle. And I wanted to say that uh, one of our challenges, uh, both even more so across the street than here, but our challenges has been how to negotiate two miracles. Uh, the miracle of God's visiting us in a very profound ways, in manifest ways, but also the ongoing miracle that is Asbury Seminary. A hundred years, people studying, learning, being trained, that is a miracle too. And so we, uh, we've been very mindful of that, and thank you for the ways that you've allowed us to disrupt, and the Lord disrupt, but also to recognize uh, his ongoing work. I also want to say I'm so glad to see Dale Locke here, one of our trustees, and thank you for coming up and with your team to help serve in prayer, and thank you for all those also that are here today in the Salvos. Praise, praise God for the Salvos. We love the Salvos. Thank you for being here as well. Uh, this is the first sermon I ever preached, uh, where before I even preached it, I was getting emails saying how bad it was. Um, so I've never had that before, you know. That's what I call prophecy. They know in advance it's bad or good or whatever. But anyway, I put it before God. Uh, this year, it was planned long ago that I would preach through a number of themes that have marked Asbury's history. Uh, the authority of scripture, entire sanctification, global evangelization, the formation of the heart and the mind, and today our historic commitment to train women for ministry. Uh, even though we uh, began in 1923, our first graduating class, not merely transfer students, was in 1927. I want to see a little picture. This is from our global alumni wall. Someday your name too will be on that wall, Lord willing. 
Uh, that will be the miracle. Um, but you can see uh, these are just our first few graduates. Uh, the first couple years we, did, we had some transfer students and so 1927 was the first like proper graduating class where we had some a group of people, four people, who had gone through the entire program from start to finish at Asbury Theological Seminary. We had four graduates in 1927. Just by comparison, this spring we'll have 304. I wonder which graduating service was shorter. <laughs> but please notice that the uh, woman there, and well, there's actually, it's amazing, you have two international students in that first class, amazing. And then we had woman, Ellen Frances Keller, who by the way, wasn't even our first woman graduate. Back in 1926, you see Faith Scott Wright. But it shows that from our very beginning, our founding, Asbury has been committed to the training of women. We also have been committed, and this is our very deepest identity as a seminary, we are committed to the authority of scripture and biblical witness. For many Christians, this seems highly inconsistent, uh, particularly since certain texts of the New Testament uh, seem to prohibit women's involvement in ministry. And I've chosen the one today, which is widely regarded as one of the most prohibitive text in the New Testament. It clearly Paul is prohibiting something. So what in the world is going on in that text? It'll be no surprise to anyone in this room that the ordination of women to become full clergy in the church is a minority position in the church. Uh, this is mostly driven by Roman Catholic understanding of pastors or priests are to be, in their view, icons of the incarnation which they interpret that to mean that the priesthood is limited to male celibate clergy. That is a big driver. But another driver are, uh, is driven by specific texts which seem to flat out bar the participation of women for ministry. And I particularly I think about the, the one I'm quoting the ESV here that was read earlier, of clans like this where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now we have to examine the accuracy of that translation, but on the face of it, it, it appears those committed to biblical authority uh, simply would have to object to the ordination of women. Now the precise language is one we have to return to and look at more carefully, but the other challenge of this passage is that Paul also goes on to connect this prohibition with a, uh, a prelapsarian or pre-fall creation text. Now this implies for many, this is not merely a localized prohibition for a specific contextual situation, but an ongoing prohibition which transcends and trumps us to localize this in any kind of narrow context related to, uh, to Ephesus. So we have a lot to unpack here. I do want to say for our guests who are expecting a revival sermon, uh, this is a sermon for a seminary audience, but, you know, God moves in all kinds of ways, and so we trust that he might move us well in this midst. But first, we have to begin by looking at the context of any passage. Uh, this, is a, this is crucial for your future work as ministers. 
uh, in the passage, in the, in the scriptures, it clearly lays out Paul had left Timothy behind in Ephesus with explicit instructions to combat false teaching in the church. This is kind of broadly the theme of the pastoral epistles in general, but it's really important in 1 Timothy. This is the after his opening greetings and grace and peace. This is the first thing he says in the third verse of the first chapter that, Timothy, I'm asking you to instruct new believers not to embrace false doctrines. Now, time doesn't permit uh, the full examination of all the false teachings in Ephesus, but everyone agrees that the dominant challenge that these heresies were tied to the pervasive presence of the Artemis cult in Ephesus. Now, here's a picture of the goddess Artemis. Uh, She was a a goddess worshipped very widely in the ancient world. There were actually multiple strands of Artemis worship, but eventually got united in Ephesus and became the seat of Artemis worship. This is a, Ephesus, of course, is a thoroughly Greek and pagan city. They fully endorsed the worship of Artemis that we found in archaeological digs already over 400. This is this in this city, 400 archaeological digs of statues of Artemis. In the center of the city, it's a, it's a harbor city, the Temple of Artemis is, was there. It was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world, the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you think about, in this picture, not do it justice, but if you all have either been to Athens or seen pictures of the Parthenon, we all know the Parthenon, okay, don't think Parthenon. This structure here was the largest structure in the ancient world. It was over twice as long as the Parthenon, over twice as wide and high as the Parthenon. This is a massive building, 127 iconic columns, uh, remarkable kinds of uh, work. So this becomes crucial for understanding uh, what was going on in Ephesus because this was a dominant reality. Everyone lived in the shadow of this major, major uh, temple to her. So in verse 8, Paul begins by admonishing men to pray, lifting up holy hands without arguing or quarreling. Now this is, uh, little hands is in contrast to a closed fist. It's uh, pushing back against places where we go and men can can do this to a place of anger or power, calling us to the Christian disposition of humility and of gentleness. And this becomes the bridge by which he then addresses the next theme of humility in women and modesty in women, particularly focused on modesty in dress. Now again, back to the Artemis cult. The Artemis cult had uh, many, many female priests. In fact, Ephesus had 15 high priests. These are like really high up in the order who were also women. And because one of the strands of the Artemis cult was focused on fertility worship. You can see her there. Uh, It's connected to fertility. A lot of the presentation of Artemis, and this comes through a lot of the uh, icons have been found, have been shown to be in uh, immodest dress and even sexually provocative ways. So Paul is admonishing the women by clarifying that Christian propriety encourages women to dress modestly and not provocatively. This is appropriate and good advice for all generations of Christians everywhere. The challenge, of course, comes with what exactly does it mean? 
Uh, and I think it's true to say that uh, um, modesty for women is, in fact, in part, culturally determined. There are certain things that are universally true, but there are certain things that are culturally determinative. And I think in our own holiness tradition, when it was more confined in one region of the country, we had certain ideas that we propagated. This is what it looks like. But as the gospel began to expand more globally, and the church, of course, now is fully globalized, it becomes much more uh, challenging. Don't think we can simply say that this is a prohibition against women wearing makeup or braiding their hair or wearing jewelry. I know my own work in India, where I serve as a missionary, there are a lot of talk in India about women wearing bangles. It's a big issue of modesty, at least in North India. So some say, you know, one bangle is one too many. Others say there's nothing wrong with one or two bangles, you know, just don't wear bangles all the way up your arm. And so people had different ideas of what exactly is modesty regarding bangles. In Tanzania, where our daughter works as a missionary the last 13 years, even if a woman wears a long skirt literally all the way to the ground, it is considered immodest, unless that skirt is also clothed with a conga, which is a large another coating over that dress, despite the heat. And this is, this is uh, you know, right on the equator. That's a Tanzanian view of, of female modesty. In India, uh, it's perfectly appropriate for women to, sh to reveal their midriff, for example. The saris are designed that way, actually. Whereas in the Western world, for a woman to expose her midriff is considered to be immodest. So there are all kinds of ways this is culturally different. But we need to understand that Paul's point is that when you meet somebody or present yourself to someone, your leading presenting edge should be the inner quality of your heart and life. They should encounter your humility, your grace, your love of Jesus. That's what we want to lead with when we meet people. Now in verse 11, Paul goes on to say, and the passage begins with the phrase, let a woman learn. Now what happens when we read that, we, we keep on reading, but we should stop right there and note the power of this phrase, let a woman learn. The text is assuming that women are under proper discipleship instruction or should be under proper instruction. Let a woman learn. Now it's important that when you're in any kind of situation where you're trying to understand like what is the theological starting place for Christians when you have any kind of question theologically. It's important to remember that your starting place is always, not just for this, but any theological question, must begin with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb is the great defining reality of the Christian faith. So even when you're discussing issues of role in women in ministry, 1 Timothy 2 is important, but you begin with the empty tomb. And this is why I think the Roman Catholic view of clergy, this is not a, remotely an anti-Catholic you know, message today, but I think on this point we would disagree with them because it's important to understand that it is true that we are icons of the incarnation in the world. But it's not to be based on the Old Testament model of priest and sacrifice, but the New Testament model of incarnation, cross, and resurrection. It's a huge point. So when Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, it radically shapes and transforms what it means to be a person in the world, both men and women. Now there's two ways this really influences and I've had time to also develop the male side, but two ways that particularly dramatically 
changed how a woman presents and walks herself, walks in herself in the world as a woman. First of all, women, no less than men, are in fact icons of the incarnation because we've all been transformed by the resurrection. We are all the people of the empty tomb. And this is a radical realignment that happens on resurrection morning. There's no question that Jesus himself affirms this in all four Gospels. He actually addresses the women first of all, and they're not merely the first, as often said, to receive the Gospel, like passive witnesses of it. They are the first to be commissioned to go and tell it. Don't forget that. The first proclaimers of the gospel were in fact women. Matthew 27, 10, Mark 16, 6 and 7, Luke 24, 9 and 10, John 20, 17. Go look at yourself. All four gospels, he tells the women, go and tell. This is long before the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus reveals his first, his messianic identity, first to the woman at the well, before the revelation at Caesarea Philippi to the other apostles. Secondly, uh, the New Testament affirms the role of celibacy in a deeper way than the Old Testament did. Now, why is that important? In the Old Testament, there was only temporary celibacy. Once the New Testament affirms the possibility of a vision for lifetime celibacy, then it, changes, it profoundly changes the possibilities for a woman in the world. Because in the ancient world, if you're a celibate, you cannot be married or have children. Now, very clear, there's no question the Bible strongly affirms the, 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 the constitution and the, the position of being married and being husband and wife. That's an icon of Christ in the church. Bearing children is an icon of the Trinity. All of that is intact. But the New Testament also opens up another avenue for women, and also for men, by the way, but for women, to be celibate. And once that is there, it opens up a huge range of vocations in the world that are very, very important. So it's a radical realignment of what it means to be a woman in the world. So these become important things that are disruptive, they're counterintuitive. If you're writing from a culture that is largely patriarchal, these become challenges to the way they understand how things work. Now go to on to verse 11. Let a woman learn with gentleness or quietness. Now this is promoting an attitude of the heart and how we learn. Paul's concerned with submitting to apostolic teaching here. We'll come back to that later. In verse 12, the ESV said, it was read today, I do not permit. Now quite a few scholars, including Ben Weatherington, including Craig Keener, quite a few others, have made the point that this is present active indicative first person, which is never used in a constructive form as a universal prohibition. It's more literally rendered, I am not now permitting. I am not now permitting. And this is the first clue. Now this is not, at this point, you know, it doesn't change, it doesn't actually conclusively bring us there, but this is the first clue. Perhaps Paul is unfolding a contextual point here rather than, you know, tied to the Artemis cult, rather than a general prohibition for all time. Well, then Paul goes on to use a very interesting word. One is not to teach. He used the word didasco there, very common word for teaching. We'll come back to that. Or he says, authenteo. Authenteo. Exercise authority is how it's translated in the ESV today. Now, very important to hear this. 
this word, authentia, is not the word that's used for authority, generally speaking, in the New Testament. Exousia. We all know that word, exousia. 104 times it appears in the New Testament. This is a major word in the New Testament. Authentio only appears here. Okay, this is what we call a hapex legomenon. Again, apologies to the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hapex legomenon. It appears only one time. So when you have that experience in the New Testament, and, and it isn't used by way of uh, prostemi, which is a word for governance, authority, the kind of governing thing, which is used eight times, New Testament, like people with Episcopal authority, that's not used here. It's authenteo. Okay, so go back to, you know, the Bauer power hour. <laughs> what were you taught? What do you do when you have a word that's only used one time in the New Testament? Because normally, you know, you've all learned this, you look at how it's used in other places in Paul or the New Testament. What if that doesn't happen? You don't have any other examples. What do you do? Well, you do what you're taught to do. You go and look. What is every play, how is that used in the first century outside the New Testament? Now, what you'll find is there are dozens of examples of this word, word in Greek plays. In the early period, sometime before the New Testament, uh, this was used as a noun, as a murderer. Okay, this was a word for a murderer. Gradually, the first century, clearly the demonstration is, if you look at how it's used in actual text of the first century, it becomes a verb, very forceful word, and it means... The following words is how it's translated in actual text of the first century. To tyrannize, to dominate, to master. Well, I think what we would say, if it was someone was writing back and looking at our use of this word, it would be, we would say the phrase, power down on somebody. It would be a popular way we would say this. Chrysostom in the fifth century uses this word and, and, and translates it as to be a despot. Okay, somebody really controlling down on somebody. Now, it's really clear uh, lexically that this word cannot be compared to the 103 times the word exousia or authority is used in the New Testament. And even in earlier translations, like the old Latin, I don't permit a woman to teach or dominate a man, it says. Vulgate, neither to domineer over a man. Even the King James, look at it, it says, usurp authority over a man. So these early translations understood that this is not merely about authority, but an abuse of authority, which Paul had in mind. It's really important. This is about abuse of authority, not authority in general. So it, we could examine it as, you know, to tyrannize, to dominate, not to exercise authority. So Paul is looking at ways in which these are what happened essentially was there were people in the Artemis cult, which was a very domineering cult, Female priests, priests which, who were domineering, the way they taught was a certain pattern. That's what they thought was religious life. That's what they did. They came into the church, and they carried that over with them. They had not yet been instructed properly, and they were teaching things in a domineering, forceful fashion, and Paul is going to stop it. Now today, and of course maybe this week might be a little helpful context for us, but in the, in the first century, church services were not like they are today. It wasn't like there was somebody up front, you know, behind like a formal pulpit like this, and everyone was just so nice and passive listening to the whole thing. That's not how it went. These were small gatherings, people talking, asking questions back and forth, people saying things. 
is a lot more interactive than what we would, you know, our idea of what happens at church. This was a much more informal environment, much more interactive environment. And so Paul was very concerned that things be done in decency and order. There's tons of examples of this New Testament. Paul is trying to say, okay, hey, this is great. It's interactive. It's people speak one at a time, speak respect, respectfully, and most of all, speak only after you've been properly instructed in the apostolic message. Now, these women were apparently not following those guidelines at all. They're speaking rudely. They're in a dominating way. They're not waiting their turn. And Paul says, stop. Let them first learn. Let them first submit to the apostolic teaching. They should remain silent until they've been learned. So the translation, I think we best, in verse 12 is, and by the way, the word is actually singular woman here. I am not permitting this woman to teach or speak in such a domineering and disruptive manner. She should remain quiet. That is what Paul is saying in verse 12, as I understand it. Now, once you do that, and by the way, let me just say something about that point, this word didasco, the teaching. It applies to the women. It applies to all of us. When you go out, what gives you the authority to teach the word of God in your future churches and ministries? The only thing that gives you the authority to teach is if you've submitted to the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. It doesn't matter if they give you a robe. It doesn't matter if they give you a special collar or a miter on your head or, or some kind of like, you know, a special incense or the, in our world, like the, the pen, the famous pen on the lapel. None of that matters. If you are not preaching what the apostles preached and taught, then you do not have authority to preach and speak. Our job is, you know, paradoka, paralabon. We receive, we pass on. That's what Paul told us to do. We are receiving the gospel. We don't make it up. It didn't start last Thursday. I heard that uh, Jessica said, I always say the gospel didn't start last Tuesday. So I'm going to say, it didn't even start last Thursday either. (laughs) We are receiving the gospel. We pass it on. So uh, we come now to this this next part. When we get to this, um, okay, looks like Paul is speaking contextually. Okay, so let's say Paul is not barring the authority of women speaking and teaching in the church. Okay, that's now a possibility. What do you do then? So we've looked at the language of this word, authenteo. We then back up and say, okay, um, does this contradict other parts of Scripture? That's a big part of this. Uh, Unclear passages made clear by clear passages. So you look around, okay, there's Deborah in Judges 4 and 5. There's the prophetess Huldah in 2 Kings 22, Miriam in Micah 6, 2. You have the New Testament, the vistas open even more. You have the women being commissioned by Jesus himself on the resurrection morning. We meet women who are prophetesses with no apology and uh, Philip's four daughters in Acts 21, 8, and 9, where Jesus, we're told, had a large number of uh, female disciples who followed him around. We find women teachers like Priscilla in the book of Acts in Romans 16, Phoebe in Romans 16, 1. We actually have a woman named Junia who is committed by Paul as a, an apostle in Romans 16, 7. In other words, there's a serious problem if 1 Timothy 2 is being used to up in all of those texts throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. So it seems that it makes better sense that the Artemis cult 
has unleashed two serious problems in the church. One, disorderly conduct. And two, false doctrine. And Paul, you know, Paul got, got to him. You know, he, he sets things right. He steps in and he says, we're going to put this to a stop. That's what he's telling Timothy to do. Now, let's go on in this passage uh, because we have to deal with this other really important objection that's also put out there. And that is, this is a reference to a creation account. He says in the text, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And for many commentators, even if they are basically convinced of all that I've said up to this point, that, yeah, you're right, this word, authenteo, is used this way, they, they, they kind of come you along to that point. They say, but when you get to this point, Paul roots this prohibition in creation itself before the fall. And because of that, automatically this is a transcultural statement and is not rooted in any kind of particular uh, cultural situations. Well, well, when you get this kind of Charge, what do you do? Well, what you do what you're supposed to do. What you learned in, uh, I don't know, I mentioned David Bauer. Who else would have taught you this? I don't know. Joe Donjel. Joe Donjel's class. Lawson Stone. You open up and say, okay, let's look at every single example where Paul makes reference to the fall. Let's just do it. I mean, or to the, I'm sorry, to the creation before the fall. Look at every pre-fall text that Paul does. This is called exegesus. So we, I've done that. Many people have done this. And you go through, and Paul, in fact, even this very text, I mean, very letter, he makes reference to creation regarding all foods are declared good. Presumably a universal point, all food is declared good. But in Romans 14, he quotes the same passage in Genesis before the fall to make the opposite point. We should give up all this food that we love so much for the sake of church unity. Paul makes a very particular contextual point that was necessary for the Roman church. We have also have Eve being quoted by Paul as a type for the Ephesian women, whereas in Corinthians, Eve it becomes a type for all, the entire church, men and women. So if you look, actually look at how Paul uses creation text, we do not find that Paul universally Whenever he mentions creation, automatically it comes out of his mouth something that is absolutely universal, political at all times. He often makes contextual points, even drawing upon creation. Now, in verses 13 and 14 of the text, Paul draws upon imagery and topology of Adam and Eve. You have to remember that in Romans 5, Paul singled out Adam with no mention of Eve as the bearer of the fall. The you know, in Adam all die. But he basically pins the whole thing on Adam. And the reason he's making a point there about Adam being kind of an archetype of rebellion against God. And we too are in Adam, and therefore we have joined in this universal rebellion against God's, God's plan. Eve, likewise, is invoked in several of Paul's letters as an archetype for deception. Now this is not to say that Men, you know, can only be rebel against God's word, and women are more likely deceived. That's not the point. The point is, if you look at apostolic teaching and say, how is, whether it be first century or today, how is apostolic teaching undermined? It's undermined in two ways. People either rebel against it, or they're deceived to think that what they're actually doing is okay when it's not. That's kind of the only two cards Satan plays, and he plays them a lot in the church. 
So Paul would say, okay, in some ways that is paradigmatic of what happened in the fall. You have rebellion and deception on day one, and that's getting replicated to the life of the church over and over and over again. So in verse 15, Paul says that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and holiness with self-control. Again, what does the text actually say? The text actually has a really important definite article before childbearing. Not just saved through childbearing, saved through the childbearing. Now this is the insertion of the definite article is important. Because just as in Romans 5, he points out the Adam, that is to say, Adam becomes the representative of the human race. Eve, in this case, is likewise becoming a representative of the human race. As Adam rebelled against God, Eve was deceived before God. So what Paul is saying here is, both in Romans and in 1 Timothy, we do not want to go the way of following the first Adam in rebelling or following the first Eve in deception. Instead, we're going to follow the second Adam, uh, the Jesus Christ, who is the one who embodies obedience. In the same way, Mary is pictured, and she's the one that bore the child. She bore the Messiah. So she is a picture of obedience and submission to God. So just as through you know, Adam, sin came into the world, and through the second Adam, sin is reversed, so through the first Eve, uh, sin dis or uh, disobedience and deception comes into the world. So through Mary, the second Eve, we have the coming of the Messiah is brought in the world. So in some ways, through a woman came the, the damnation of the world. Through a woman comes the salvation of the world through the work of Mary and her obedience. So the passage is filled with a lot of applications for everyone in this room. It calls all of us to humility in how we dress and how we act. It calls all of us to propriety in our speech and how we conduct ourselves in worship services. It calls us to be attentive and submissive to sound teaching and instructed with humility in the apostolic faith. These are really good admonitions. I think as seminary students, it also calls us we have to really do good, solid, biblical, theological work to prepare for ministry. Because we, these, all of these passages and many, many others can be co-opted and we have to be very careful, good students of the Word of God. It's also, I think, finally, why Asbury Seminary, at the same time, throughout 100 years of our history, has affirmed the authority of Scripture, but full-throatedly, affirmed the ordination and the empowerment of women for ministry because we just simply do not believe that scripture teaches a universal prohibition against women in ministry. And I wanted to say as the president, as somebody the pastor of this community, that I thank God for everyone that God calls to come here, to be trained for ministry. I know that we are supportive of all who come in our midst and we want to listen to God's work and God's empowerment for every person to be answering to God because everyone in this room is an icon of the resurrection and we are all people of the risen Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.